you can open up to the book of James. Um, if you're using the CPAC Bibles, you're looking, there should be a bookmark that gets you right to James. Um, if not, it should be, I think it's page 1010 is what we figured out this morning. Or you can open up one of these handy-dandy notebooks you should have gotten when you walked in. Uh, these are, um, the company Crossway has um, put these together where they're taking each book of the Bible and they are kind of just, if you haven't already peeked through it, you open it up and it's got the text of the book um, on one side and then lots and lots of blank pages for notes. And so I thought, especially with James, as we're going to get into it here in a minute, as we start a new study in James, I thought this would be a good time. I've been wanting to check these out for a while, and, and so this is just a, a little gift resource for you. Hopefully it is helpful. If you are not the kind that takes notes, I think James is a real good book for you to maybe try that out, um, or even just your own reflections and, and how, um, how God's Word is speaking to you. I hope this is helpful for you, so um, use it however you would like, but uh, it's a, just a free resource for you to uh, hopefully help. And then we get to the end of James, and you got your own little reflection commentary resource that you can put on your bookshelf, and the next time you go back to study James, you have a little bit of help. So um, that is for you. Like I said, if you didn't get one, they're at the front table, so please go ahead and grab one. Um, and uh, this is uh, just a little gift for you. I'm really excited about them. I'm, I'm excited to use it. Um, I think it's going to be pretty helpful. So um, we are uh, we're going to start the study of James. Before we get there, though, our community group leaders have loved and served and cared for us uh, all year long. Community groups have wrapped up. Uh, we take usually take a little break for the summer from community groups, give everybody a chance to kind of uh, just enjoy the rest of the, the summer and hanging out, and we do some other things in place of those, and they'll start back up in the fall. But um, our community group leaders, uh, Monica and Matt and Chris and Dave, um, all gave of themselves their time, their energy, not only in hosting and leading groups, but also in preparation for discussions and sending out prayer requests and, and just generally caring for us. So um, all of you guys, thank you very much for all the ways you have loved and cared and served um, served our church in this last year. We very much appreciate it. And I'm looking forward already. Now you can start thinking about it. Um, if community group leading is something that is interest you or even hosting uh, interests you, we're going to start talking about that here in the next couple of weeks to get ready for the fall. Um, I know I don't want to slingshot past summer either, but we got to start prepping now. So start thinking about that. Start praying about that is, uh, would you like more information? Would you like to learn more about what it looks like to maybe lead a group or host a group um, coming up in the fall? So, um, all right. So like I said, we're going to be in James. Today's one of my favorite days because we start a new study today. And so if you are a guest with us this morning, um, what we tend to do here as a church is we take the book of the Bible and we just kind of walk through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because it helps us to understand the fullness of of the original message of these different books. It also uh, doesn't let us hide from anything, right? There are things in the Bible that are challenging, that um, are challenging because we live in a world that is broken and fallen. And Scripture tells us this is God's original plan and intention for how society, how the world is to work. And then we see how the world goes different, and we have to kind of wrestle with those things. And the Bible has some hard, direct things for Christians, and so we don't want to hide from that. We don't want to avoid the places and the topics that are can make us feel uncomfortable. We want to be careful and considerate and develop a very full and rich and deep understanding of the Scriptures. And so um, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 that all of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. James is no different. Um, 
because of the style of James, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, it is full of these short, memorable phrases that a lot of you might already know, but you might not know where they come from. So things like, God cannot be tempted, that's James. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, James. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, James. Faith without works is dead, James. And so I like to give you guys a little bit of an idea. I, I tend to um, plan out, at least in pencil, a year's worth of preaching of where we're going, what we're doing. Um, and I like to give you a little bit of peek behind the curtain so you guys know that I'm not like just, I don't put the books of the Bible up on a wall and just, you know, chuck a dart at them. I'm like, all right, we're going to James now. There's a plan and a thought process and a, and a reason for uh, why we do what we do. And so um, part of the reason I want to study James is this book is the personal connection and reflection of this book and, and what it draws us into. Right, and we say it all the time here, Christianity is a team sport. Yes, Christianity is a team sport. We do this together. But we also each walk through this life reflecting Christ to the world as individuals. And so there are things in this book in James that, yes, as a collective community that we're going to want to wrestle with and, and talk about instruction for the corporate gathering of the saints. But also there is a lot in this book for us to sit in and wrestle with as individuals, as individual image bearers of God. It asks hard questions and, and helps us, and we're going to wrestle with some hard topics through these next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about being a Christian and having money, and how do those things work out, and how do those things find conflict with one another. The role of prayer in healing. Should we pray for people who are suffering with terminal diseases? Should we lay hands on people? What's, what's the point? James talks about putting oil on people. Should we be pouring oil on each other? We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about how we use our mouths to cuss out that guy who cut us off in traffic, and then we still come into church and we sing about how God is always for us with the same mouth. We're going to talk about even this section that is in chapter 2 of James that many people for a long time have wrestled with and struggled with, and, it, and it, at first glance it seems that James is saying something, that giving us an issue with a point that we take very serious here at CF in that Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we add nothing to that. We can't work our way to God, and yet James is going to tell us that faith without works is dead. You already heard me say it, and there is a relationship between our faith and our works. And how does that coincide with what Scripture says, what Paul speaks a lot about in his letters, about salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, and that it is not of ourselves, lest any man should boast. We're going to talk about that. As I already said, James writes and says, here are the ways in which I want you to think about what it looks like to be in community together. See, many want to frame the book of James as this do this, do that, do better instruction for Christians. And while the theme of James is there is a theme of obedience to Christ in it, it's part of the letter. It's not the whole focus. James is calling us to examine our hearts, to examine our thoughts and our motivations in regard to what we know about the gospel. And most specifically, he's going to challenge us and, and help us to think through Jesus' teaching on the greatest commandments, love God and love people. We live at a time where loving God and loving people, either one of those is going to get a lot of people angry with you. And if you do both, everybody's going to be angry with you and for some reason. 
this is a perfect time, I think, in our history and just where we are as a, as a people in this city to talk about this influential book and help us walk through some of the what does it look like for us to actually live these teachings out. So I'm going to pray, and then we are going to uh, jump into James. I'm excited, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, God. We thank you for sunshine. We thank you for, God, we thank you for color. We thank you for um, the smell of, of uh, summertime hitting the city and, and these details of creation that you have given to us that you didn't have to. But they reveal not only your creativity and your power, but just your, your goodness and your common grace to all people, that you would give us a world that is so uh, intricate and, and beautiful and detailed. God, we um, come this morning knowing that you have given us the, the gift of your word, the gift of the Bible, and that all of it is for all of us. And so, God, we... We come this morning as we open up and we begin this study in James. God, we uh, ask that you would give us clarity. Help us to see what is hard to see. Help us to understand what is hard to understand. Help us to believe what is hard to, un hard to believe. And, and give us hands and feet to respond to what it is you are calling us to in this book. God, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in James, uh, starting right there, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, so let's go. This is a good day. Every day is a good day to have your Bible open. Today is one of those kind of days. James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Stop there. Yes, it's going to be one of those kind of series. We're going four verses today. Uh, but before we get into these four verses, let's talk a little bit about James and a little bit what is happening, who it is he's writing to, when it is he's writing. James is regarded as really the New Testament book of Proverbs. And you're going to see as we read through this book, the biggest influences for this letter are the book of Proverbs. You're going to see that stylistically, but also Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his, probably his most famous, biggest teaching. Um, these two things are going to come up often throughout this book. Like I said, stylistically, like Proverbs, uh, James has a lot of what seem to be disconnected thoughts and ideas, where he's going to talk about something for a few verses and then go to a totally different topic, it seems. But in actuality, there is a lot of connection and unity throughout this book because he uses certain words and phrases over and over again, and we'll point them out as we go. Really, the book, once we get through chapter 1, is, is comprised of 12 key teaching points throughout the book, each one of them kind of ending with a, with a one-liner, a, a verse that kind of is a, a tagline for that teaching. They all kind of can stand on their own. But together, they help to shape and focus what it means to have a wholehearted devotion to following Jesus. And that's James's goal here. So who is this? Who is this James? Well, the name is common. There are really two leading possibilities for who wrote this book. You have James the Apostle, right? The brother of John, one of Jesus's uh, original 12. He's in the inner three, Peter, James, and John. They were kind of his three inner circle leaders. But there is enough history and enough evidence suggesting that the writer of 
the book of James is not James the Apostle, but rather it is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He appears a few times in the New Testament, specifically Acts 12, Acts 15, and then he's mentioned a couple of times in Paul's, letters to the, uh, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. After Peter leaves Jerusalem, right, the church begins in Jerusalem. The, the New Testament church begins in Jerusalem. After Peter leaves to go and evangelize and to plant churches, James is the one who steps up and becomes really the senior pastor of the first Christian church, of the church in Jerusalem. This is the first Christian community post Jesus' resurrection. He's in heaven, and they're figuring out how to, how to do this, right? We spent a year talking through the book of Acts. And they come together, and they build this community within Jerusalem. Peter's gone. Paul is off planting churches, and James is the one who stays behind and is really leading this church, and he is a strong leader. He leads the church in Jerusalem for about 20 years, and during that time, the church goes through some hard seasons, including a famine that affects the area, and it brings with it some financial circumstances that make it tough on the church. When the persecution of the Christians intensifies as the church is beginning, he is the one leading and serving and guiding the people on how to endure well. And throughout it all, he remains this pillar of the community and of the faith. History says that this book was that history says that James was murdered in AD 62. And so most scholars date this letter sometime between 45 and 48 AD. We're talking 15 to 18 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is probably the first New Testament, the earliest. I know it's in the back of your Bible, but James has got pretty much the earliest date as far as writing goes. He's writing to many who heard Jesus, who saw him. Really, this is that first early generation of Christians, of, of believers trying to figure out what it means. How do we, how do we live this out? We, we heard him teach. We saw him. We saw him perform miracles. We want to follow him. But now he's gone. How do we live this out? What, what does it look like to live out the teachings of Jesus even though he's not around to give us instruction? And so we have this letter from James. Verse 1 he introduces himself as most New Testament letters start. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we already said, most scholars believe this is the half-brother of Jesus. While James is a very common name, even within the New Testament, there are very few who could introduce themselves in a letter like this without having to give more of a descriptor. He's one of those people because he is who he is. He has the life that he has come from. He is the leader of the Jerusalem church. He is the peacemaker, the leader, the uniter. He was known as James the Just. And see how he describes himself. What he uses to give himself credibility for what he's about to tell them, for what he's about to instruct them to do, the importance of this letter. He says, I am a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a servant. Better translated, I'm a slave to God. James doesn't introduce himself as James, the half-brother of Jesus, or James, the leader of the first church. He goes with James, a slave of God. This is who he is. This is how he identifies himself, how he sees himself. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 6.20, You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith, my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. James understood rightly he was no longer his own, but a servant, a slave of God. And even there, he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, he's not splitting those th two things up, but rather putting them together because we know you can't be a slave to do two different masters. You can't serve two masters at once. No, here in, in these opening words of what would we would consider inconsequential introduction, James is declaring the very truth that caused his brother to end up on the cross, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the set-apart one, the Christ. Christ is a title. It's not his last name. James's full name is not James Christ. Christ is a title specifically given to Jesus. It is the title of Savior and Redeemer and Restorer, a title given to and fulfilled by Jesus in his death and resurrection. You see, James experienced a transition of thought, a transition of understanding of who Jesus was. In Mark 3, Jesus is performing miracles and then becomes surrounded by this large crowd and he's teaching them and he's healing them. And in the midst of all, it's, of all of that, it says that his family came to him to try and take him away because they thought, and I quote, he was out of his mind. In the early days of Jesus' ministry, his family thought he was out of his mind. Presumably, James was among those who thought his brother had lost it. Later on in John 7, it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. But here now, Years later, after seeing his brother go through his death on the cross, after seeing his brother appear resurrected, Paul tells us in Corinthians that James got a special one-on-one, -on -one, that Jesus appeared to the disciples. He appeared to large groups, but he also appeared to his brother and had a one-on-one -on -one encounter with him post-resurrection. After seeing all of that, here now James has gone on to be a leader, a teacher, a pastor, all serving and following the lead of his Lord and God and Messiah, his brother Jesus. And he says he writes to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Again, this is an early dating on James, right? Early 40, 45, 48 AD. And so he's writing primarily to Christian Jews. Messianic Jews is who he's focused on, right? If we think back to the book of Acts, you can remember that the church starts again in Jerusalem, and it grows and it grows. And then in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, the persecution against the church starts to intensify, greatly led by Saul of Tarsus. And many of the believers scatter from Jerusalem, and they take with them their belongings, their loved ones, and their gospel. And the gospel begins to spread out. And many leave, it tells us, but the apostles stayed behind. The leaders of the church stayed behind to lead to lead those who were stuck there. And so the, the apostles and leaders stay behind, but everyone else goes. God's people are once again scattered. This is a common theme for his people throughout the Bible. At this point, there aren't really Gentile Christians, right? Peter hasn't had his encounter in, uh, in Cornelius' living room yet. So he's focused mostly on these Jewish Christians who have scattered because of the persecution. And using this phrase, dispersion, harkens back to the Old Testament, uniting them to their past, to their history, when the Israelites were taken from the promised land during the Babylonians or the Assyrian captivity. The, the Israelites were continuously being kicked out of their home. It's an understanding that God's people are not home. He's writing to a specific people at a specific time in a specific place, scattered around, but it doesn't change that, Christians, this is not our home. Those he is writing to were not physically in the place God set apart for them, but on a greater level, we ourselves are still not in the place God has set apart for us, heaven. 
We are aliens and sojourners. This is not our primary place of residency, but rather as believers, we have an eternal residency in heaven. And so with the introduction out of the way, James gets into and begins to instruct and teach these Christians scattered. He says in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. This book has many commands, many imperatives. This is the first of them. The imperative is directed at my brothers. The text says my brothers, but as you heard me read it, I like to say brothers and sisters because the word he uses there is a catch-all. It's it's like saying y'all, right, or guys, even though it's mixed company. It's a generic phrasing that includes both men and women. But what's more important here than the word choice is that he's addressing these recipients as family. They are not only the 12 tribes, Jewish Christians dispersed and scattered abroad, but they are united as a people, united as a family. Brothers and sisters, united by grace through faith in Christ. When he gives this instruction, this command, when he talks about trials and testing, it's not as a distant, disconnected leader, oblivious to the struggles and frustrations of those trying to live this out. He, is writing, he isn't writing from an insulated place of protection to nameless, faceless, random people. He's writing knowing firsthand the experiences of the people writing to continue to comfort and lead and care for his brothers and sisters. He's writing as a fellow believer, a sibling in the faith, a fellow servant of God, looking out for and guiding and encouraging his brothers and sisters and what God has for them. There is a care and a concern built in, a care and concern for the heart of the people that are reading this letter. And that's what I want us to remember as we walk through this book over these next few weeks. It's about our hearts, our care and concern for God and for one another. That's at the core of this letter. James wants the, uh, to have us to have a soft heart for one another and for our relationship with God, to be able to hear instruction and respond to it. So he gives this command, this instruction, this imperative in verse 2. And I want to start with the second half, with the when, and then we'll come back to the what. He starts with when, or he finishes with when you meet trials of various kinds. When, not if. Not, hey, this might happen to you. Hey, just in case trials happen to randomly come up in your life. No, he says it's when they come. You will face trials. If you are a human existing in this world, you will face trials. Now, if you hear that and you do a quick assessment of your life and you don't feel like trials have really been a thing for you, I promise, don't worry, they're coming. But for some of you, I think for many of us, we realize that it's not a matter of are they coming, but I'm in it right now. It's here right now. I'm in this season. Trials, yeah, I feel that. It's part of our life. It's part of the ebbs and flows of living in this fallen world. Peter backs this same idea up in his letter in 1 Peter, and you're going to hear a lot from Peter in this study because the similarities between James and 1 Peter are striking. But in 1 Peter 4, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be shocked. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't be so surprised and caught off guard that that trials are coming for you. There are some who want to teach that you become a Christian, and then you get to be put into this bubble of protection, and nothing bad can happen to you. That's just not true. 
to be a Christian, we want to emulate Christ, right? How did that go for him? We're trying to emulate the broke teacher who ended up on a cross. So it's not going to go well. It's not going to be easy just by nature of what it is we are trying and striving toward. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised when trials come. These trials can be internal or external. Temptations toward sin or really just any number of difficulties of living in a broken, fallen world while being imperfect creatures. James expounds on these trials in verse 3 when he refers to it as the testing of your faith. So we're talking about the situations and seasons and moments that make us question and cause us to fret and lead us to doubt and to second guess and to quite possibly walk away from the faith. That's what James is talking about here. These things that distract and can completely corrupt your faith if you're not careful. See, the word trial can actually also be translated as temptation. It just depends on the context. The same is true for life, right? In the book of Job, it tells the story of a godly man, a devout, faithful man of God, who Satan is given access to and permission to, to see if Satan can tempt Job to curse God and walk away from his faith. God allows this to happen, knowing that what Satan is using as temptation, God is going to use as a trial to strengthen the faith of Job. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. James says you will have trouble. You will have trials of various kinds, multicolored, all shapes and sizes, things that can dissuade, distract, and divert us from our focus on our relationship with God. It's everywhere, all at once, all the time. From the temptation towards self-righteous, sin-filled gratification to the perpetual noise and distraction of living in Chicago in 2023, we are at every turn faced with difficult decisions to make regarding our faith and how we are going to proceed with it. And in the midst of that, in the midst of these trials that he says are definitely coming for us, James told us in the opening of this verse, count it all as joy. This is obviously not the natural response we would have, right? If it was, he wouldn't need to write it. We wouldn't need to talk about it. No, quite the opposite. We respond with joy when we avoid or escape trials and temptations. When we choose the path of least resistance, when we find a shortcut around traffic, when the caffeine kicks in and eliminates the headache, when we remember, when we actually remember to take the chicken out of the freezer in the morning so it's thawed and we have something to cook at night, we rejoice in those wins. We rejoice in those obvious easy wins, but not in trials and temptations. That's not the default. But that's what James tells us to do. He commands it, not suggests or implies it, but commands that we count it all joy. Deliberately, deeply consider your situation. And regardless of how it comes out, in response to that situation you are in, choose joy. So let's talk about joy for a little bit. Joy is not blind giddiness. I'm not talking about pretending everything is fine, everything is okay. We just go along, we put a smile on our faces as if nothing bad is ever happening. It is hard, near impossible to be happy and in a trial at the same time. 
Joy doesn't just pretend like sickness and sadness and suffering and sin don't happen. That's not joy. It's not oblivious to what reality is. But it is possible to have joy in the midst of a trial. Because joy is a choice. Joy is a confidence. A confidence of God's control in my life that leads me to trust him and praise him regardless of the circumstances. Joy is confidence of God's control in my life that leads me to trust him and praise him regardless of the circumstances. It is a choice that we make, a choice that we decide that we are not going to let the situations of this world dictate to us how we are going to respond to this world. Joy allows us to rest and enjoy the blessings of God. And it allows us to rest and enjoy the knowledge that even in the darkness, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Why? Because God is with us and for us. Joy is what kept the Israelites looking to the horizon of life, knowing one day their Messiah would come. Knowing one day a Savior was going to show up to fight for us in a battle that we ain't strong enough to fight on our own. To rescue and redeem and renew this world. It's what led them to worship him while slaves, while exiles, while refugees, while sinners in rebellion against God. To call on the name of their God knowing that he knows best. Knowing that he was going to take care of them. That he's going to move and trusting in who he is. That's where joy comes from. Joy comes from God himself. He is the creator, founder, and deliverer of joy. And it begins when we realize we have sinned against God and we put our faith, trust, and hope in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. The gospel is a message of joy. It's why we call it good news. There is joy in the message, the joy of salvation, the joy of being saved from the penalty our sins demand, our death, the joy of redemption, the joy of restoration, the joy of right relationship with God, the joy of understanding the seriousness of our predicament due to our sin and the love, grace, and mercy shown to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. Just a couple of days ago, um, Sad for us, awesome for him, but uh, Pastor Tim Keller went home to go be with his Lord and Savior. I have a quote uh, on my wall in my study. Um, It's one of my favorite Tim Keller quotes. He said, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The gospel is joy. And it's where we first meet it. It's where we understand and try it on for size for the first time. It's in the gospel. That's where we encounter joy that first time to truly understand just how depraved, just how lost and helpless and hopeless we were without a Savior. Choosing joy in the midst of trials is only possible when you first have a relationship with God. When you realize you can't save you, you won't save you. Your actions, your goodness, your niceness, it's not enough. It's not about what we have done or will do or plan to do. 
There is no earning our way to heaven. There is no checklist of niceness that once you get through it all, boom, you're in. The standard and expectation is perfection, and we have all failed that test long, 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 long ago. There's only been one. God himself came to earth to live a perfect, sinless life, die in our place for our sins, and rise from the dead, defeating and declaring his power and authority over sin, death, and hell. And to anyone and everyone who would put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you will be saved. There is joy to be had in putting your faith in Christ. Not because it provides this bubble where you are impervious to the evil of this world, but rather because you know that as you walk through this world enduring evil, the evil of it, you know something better is coming. God has proven his faithfulness time and time and time and time and time again. And so we know that fear and worry and doubt, these things do not need to overwhelm us because we are the children of God, the God of all existence in which he is in complete control of all things at all times. Yes, we will face trials. We will at times be engulfed by them. But in those seasons, we can choose joy. We can choose to allow our confidence in God to act as an anchor for us in the midst of the storm. See, there's a purpose to this imperative. There's a purpose to this command to choose joy. It's not about what we feel. It's not about what we think. But James says it's about what we already know. He says in verse 3, You know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So what do we know? What do we know as believers? We know God is good. We know he is in control of all things at all times. We know there is nothing outside of his power and his authority. We know that he doesn't waste time, that everything has a purpose to it. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that he is a God of order and not chaos. We know that he knows us. And we could do this all day. All of what we know of who God is, of his character and will, all of it reminds us that we know that there is a purpose for everything, even our trials. And so the testing of our faith, as James said, James, he doesn't say, what our faith is in. He says, the testing of your faith, but he doesn't go and talk about the testing of your faith in Christ or the testing of your faith in God. He just says the testing of your faith because he's writing to those who are part of the 12 tribes. They're, these are brothers and sisters. He's, he's saying, look, I don't even have to go into what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is your life being a Christian, living this out. You know the testing of your life as a Christian. That's what we're talking about here. When the trials and testing come, the challenges of your faith, Will you make the choice in that moment to choose to actually live in line with the will of God, in line with what you know of Scripture, in line with what you have been taught, in line with what the Holy Spirit is commanding you to do? In those moments, in those trials, in those temptations, will you choose to actually live into the faith you proclaim? When trials and testing come that challenge your faith, there's a reason for them. There's a reason for them. The testing of our faith produces steadfastness. This idea of us being tested, again, it's spoken about in 1 Peter. I told you he was going to come up a bunch. In 1 Peter 1, 
Peter is talking about enduring hardships, and he talks about it like the refiner's fire. It's this idea that you take gold, un, uh, like fresh, you know, freshly mined gold, and you put it into the fire at the hottest it can get. And the fire will burn off all the impurities, all the things that aren't pure gold. And so eventually you take that out and what you have left is the purest, strongest, most valuable uh, piece of gold. And for Peter, in 1 Peter 1, his focus is on the result of the process, that pure and strong faith, what you're taking out of the fire. But James here uses the same word, but his focus is on the process itself. The actual time in the heat, the process of purifying and strengthening. That process, that time in the fire is watched over and controlled by God. He knows how long we need to cook in the trial. How much we need to experience to get to his desired result, which is for us to grow in steadfastness. We are not given trials and temptations to destroy us and tear us down. That's not what God's, that has nothing to do, that is completely counter to God's character and will. But rather it is to build us up, to strengthen us, and to produce in us steadfastness. Most commonly that word steadfastness is translated patience. But it's not just a passive sit and wait for the bus kind of patience. Literally it's a compound word, it's to remain and under. So it has this notion of endurance and perseverance. As you are under the heavy weight of something, you are holding it up. Many years ago, my dad was remodeling uh, our kitchen. Took it all the way down to the studs. It was this whole big project. And at one point, uh, I remember we were installing the microwave that was going to go in above the stove. Um, And my job was to hold the giant microwave that was going above the stove and just hold it while he went up on the stepladder and screwed it into the cabinets. And so my job was just right here, holding this thing up, trying to be helpful and line up these holes that I couldn't see, but I was told to understand where they were. But just hold it up. It was my job to literally remain under the machine, holding it up while he attached it. We live in a culture that doesn't have much steadfastness built into it. Even that word just sounds old, doesn't it? Just It doesn't sound like a thing. It takes a long time to get through the word. Like that, Even that doesn't feel right. When we don't like something or someone or some situation, we act quickly to negate the offense. Quit your job. Ghost that person. Move away. Just get rid of it. Now, I will say sometimes disconnecting from a hostile or abusive situation is what is needed. Don't just sit and endure abuse because you think you're supposed to stay in it. That's not what we're talking about. What I'm saying in general is that the message all over the place in our world is that if you don't like something, walk away and try something else because your happiness, your feelings are the utmost priority. Everyone and everything is interchangeable, replaceable, and exchangeable. Even when nothing is particularly bad, it's just not bright and shiny, right? Our entire economic system is driven by, go get this new phone. Your phone works fine, but it's not brand new. Get a new car. Yours drives fine. The bus runs fine. You can't afford a car payment, but you should get one anyway, because who doesn't love that new car smell? Staying put, planting, 
remaining, enduring, persevering, steadfastness. It's not really part of the conversation in our world today. So then it's no wonder why it's a struggle to endure trials and temptation. Well, when everything else we hear all the time is that if you're uncomfortable, give up and run away and go find comfort. But if we take that mentality into our relationship with God, we are missing out on growth and development and maturity and a deeper, richer relationship with him. The testing of our faith, the enduring of these trials can produce in us this active patience, this enduring perseverance with us. I say it can, but it's not a guarantee. Because if we go through trials and temptations with grumbling and resentment, oh, woe is me, why am I stuck in this? What will grow is discontentment and frustration. That's why James started this with, count it all as joy. Trust and be confident in God and the reality that he knows best and knows how to best produce in us this enduring patience. The choice for joy is necessary component for us to grow in our steadfastness. And according to James, the steadfastness has within itself a deeper, richer, fuller result. It's not even the end goal fully. Verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Steadfastness, enduring patience is not, is not developed or mastered overnight. It takes time. That shouldn't come as a shock, right? Patience takes patience. Trust the process. Don't cut corners. Don't rush. Don't try to take matters into your own hands. Don't get antsy and think God forgot about you. No. He knows exactly where you are and what you're walking through. We trust God when, you see, we trust God when his desires make sense to us, right? When it's clear and obvious and easy. Clearly God is blessing this, and so we can trust it. And when he works in our time frame, when the time frame that we approve of, God, I need you to move right now today. But as soon as there's a glitch or a hiccup, when we realize that God's will doesn't always include two-day free shipping, we back out and we go looking for something that promises what we're looking for in the time frame we want it, which usually is now. But if you can trust God, if you can trust the process and his timing, trust his care and concern for you, and especially in the midst of a trial, then you will see the goal of steadfastness, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, right off the bat, we're not talking about earthly sinlessness. That won't happen until we go meet Jesus. So what does James mean by perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing? What he is saying, he's using these three words, but he's saying the same thing, just trying to really emphasize it, that you may be fully mature, well-rounded spirit, have a well-rounded spiritual character, and like a Boy Scout, always be prepared. Our steadfastness through trials will cause us to no longer have a spiritual deficiency. God, God is using these things to grow us, to shape us, to form us, to cultivate us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. God uses trials to build us up and grow us up. It's just like in life, right? I mean, in your experience, how have you matured and grown the most? Isn't it in failing and falling down? I mean, has your growth and maturity come because you did everything right the first time, every time, and you won everything always? No. You fell. 
You failed. You made mistakes. You got the scars to prove it. You thought you knew best, and you learned the hard way, what my mom always called learning life's lessons. You moved forward and made adjustments after the failure. For those of you who are active and enjoy working out, I don't understand you people, but I know you exist. Or at least if you're like me, you do it even though you don't like it. At its core, what you're doing to your body, whether you're lifting weights, you're running, you're swimming, whatever it is, you're stressing and straining your muscles in order for them to grow and strengthen. You got to put them under duress to see a change. So if hard stuff is how we see growth in our physical lives, why would our spiritual maturity be any different? I know we wish it wasn't that way. We want to believe that we can get maturity without the trials. We want to believe that we can mature without them. But the truth is we need them to grow and mature, and God knows that. That's why God allows them to prepare us and grow us and mature us. There's a purpose to that. Now, I said that that perfect mentioned here isn't earthly, sinless perfection. And while that isn't for us here and now today, there is a day coming. A day when the scattered will be reunited. A day when joy will be the default of our hearts and minds. A day when trials and testing will be over and done with. A day where we will no longer need to endure. We will no longer need to be patient. We will no longer need to persevere. A day is coming when we will truly and fully be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing because we will be with God and eternity and wanting and needing for nothing. He will supply it all for us. That's what John tells us in Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven before God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In this world, we will have trouble. We will meet trials and temptations of various kinds. The answer for those things isn't try harder, do better. It isn't slap a smile on your face and pretend like the world isn't falling apart around you. You can feel your emotions. You can acknowledge and admit to your hardships. Our joy comes from God. That's where the choice is, from being in relationship with him, from experiencing and trusting and resting in the grace and mercy of God. When we know, experientially know, the saving grace of God in our lives, we can have joy regardless of the situation because we know that he is good and in control of all things at all times. And as we walk through those trials, if we focus on Christ in the midst of them, if we fix our eyes on him, he's going to do a work in us. It doesn't make it easier or funner or lighter, but it does give us a purpose. It gives us something to look toward. He's the one in control, allowing these things to happen, allowing our testing to produce steadfastness, and he's the one carrying that process out to completion. 
He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is the steadfastness he has produced in us that will develop over time into maturity to grow us and strengthen us. And that maturity, that growth, that strength, it comes in waves. It comes in increments. And while we can, in turn, use that growth, growth, strength, and maturity, it will help us along and help us to encourage and lift and care for one another. We can count it all joy because God started the process and he will fulfill the process and in doing so grow us all the more, more and more into becoming a people who are more, more and more Christ-like and proclaiming Christ with our words and in our actions. It is God's desire to see you grow, to see you mature, to see you lack nothing in your spiritual life. Trials will come. So count it all as joy because we know God is good and he has a plan for us to shape us and grow us and mature us. He's working in and through every aspect of your lives. He is with you and he's for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this book of James and for this reminder and this, this call to our hearts to, to trust you, to trust in who you are, to know that it is hard to live, it is hard to exist, it is hard to be. And in the midst of that hardness, you call us to count it all as joy, which seems overwhelming. It seems counterintuitive. But when we realize our joy is grounded and founded in you, it is a confidence, it is a choice to choose you over choose, choosing what this world has to offer, Lord. It, it makes so much sense when we stop and slow down and, and realize and, and remember just how good you are and how faithful and just and kind and loving and merciful and gracious, all the things that you are, God. Why in the world would we choose anything else? Why in the world would we take our eyes off you? Why in the world would we ignore you and put you aside? But we do. God, help us to count it all as joy. Help us. God, we need you. We can't do this on our own. Shape our hearts. Change our hearts. Call us to yourself. Remind us of who you are and how good you are and how faithful and just you are. God, while we do not seek out trials and temptations while we do not always enjoy them. God, help us to remember that there's a point and purpose, that you are growing us, that you are shaping us and maturing us for our own benefit and for the benefit of our brothers and sisters, that we might be able to care for one another in even a stronger and better way as we grow and mature ourselves. God, help us to see the bigger picture and what it is that we are walking through so that we might count it all as joy we and in doing so be the lights of the world you have made us to be god we thank you and praise you amen